Go with me, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. You know, I don't know how many years you may have lived in vanity and pride, caring not your Lord was crucified, but I realize that the answer to our emptiness and sinful pride has always been and always will continue to be Calvary. Calvary. And so we rejoice in what Jesus had done at Calvary. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we're going to be reading an account about a man who was at one time identified as a man after God's own heart. I'm talking about King David. And King David was one who, who had to come to grips with his sin. And I believe that what happened to King David was for a long, long time in that he was overwhelmed with guilt. But he would not acknowledge his sin. He would not bring it forth to God, before God, to confess it so that he would be forgiven. You know, we need to reassess our lives and that we need to consider just what has been our priorities and what should be our priorities. And likewise, we might come to this conclusion, at least for me, to live a healthier lifestyle physically and a healthier life spiritually. I've got to get rid of some things. I mean, I've got to get rid of some things. Maybe you've already determined that you're going to get rid of some clutter in your home. You know, it seems more and more, more and more that as we get older, it's like, you know what? We haven't seen those things in some time. Do we really need them? Let's get rid of that clutter, right? It's only important that we do that before that clutter takes over our life, right? Now, you say, I want to get rid of some clutter that's in my life. I, I don't know, but to most people, we usually think about this at the start of a new year. That we want to make a resolution, that we want to be able to start off uh, this new year with those new resolutions and a new life. I, I'm telling you, we don't have to wait until this new year starts. We need to get rid of some of that clutter. We need to let go of guilt today. That's what's important. We need to get rid of that excess debt. Some people want to get rid of harmful influences and all that's well and good. But you know, I could have entitled the message today, letting go of greed. Or because, you know, some people for a long, long time, no doubt if I've been holding, you know, or, or just carried away with greed. I could have entitled the message of letting go of gossip because sometimes we find ourselves carried away with gossip. I could have entitled the message tonight, Letting Go of a Grudge, because some people just seem to carry a grudge for a long, long time against somebody else. And I'll tell you, the person that's hurt when you hold a grudge is really the person holding the grudge. That's right. But tonight, I have chosen letting go of guilt. Now, there are a lot of people in our world today that are suffering unnecessarily under a heavy burden of guilt. And you may be one of those members who are under a load of guilt. Now, preachers sometimes 
can increase this burden. And if, I, if all I ever preach to you is a message that is negative and that the uh, points, that it just points out our faults all the time and, and my faults as well, then that, that's not healthy, is it? That, that's not going to be spiritually healthy. We need to identify our faults and we need to understand those faults that the decisions that we make in life have consequences. I'm sure that we can all agree that our life has consequences. And whether we make the positive or negative decisions, there's going to be consequences. But at the same time, I have not done my job as a preacher if I don't tell you that you can get rid of guilt in your life. You can get rid of guilt in your life. Let me tell you something. God does not want you to live permanently with guilt. But before we look at what David had to do to get rid of the guilt in his life, I want you to know this about guilt. There is a good form of guilt and there is a bad form of guilt. For example, if I have violated God's will, then I need to feel guilty, right? And the Bible says it's God's means of making us feel guilty when we have offended the will of God. We need to understand that. That's why 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God, that you and I, can be completely thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So God realizes that at times we need to feel guilty and he's given us what? A conscience. A conscience. And when that is violated, I feel the, the pangs of guilt. But now I know this. God does not want that guilt to remain in my life. He does not. He wants that guilt to motivate me to come back to him and to receive his forgiveness. But on the other hand, there is something that we can identify as bad, bad guilt. You see, when I refuse to come back to God, when I refuse to accept his forgiveness, that cannot only rid my life of sin, but likewise take care of the guilt. You see, I'm going to suffer unnecessarily. And some have suffered unnecessarily for many, many years. All because they thought that in, they, all because they bought into the lie of the devil. And that lie is that if your sin, or if you sin, there will not be any consequences. And if you do sin, it is just, look at what you've done. Isn't that what, basically what, the way he looks at it? That's what the devil says. And so people are plagued with this thing called guilt. Now, there are people out there, and we've got to face this as well. There are people out here in the world that will always be ready and willing to make you feel guilty. Make you feel guilty for what you have done about some things that you need not be guilty about, right? There are people, maybe some in your life, who will try to make you feel guilty, for example, because of what they perceive your attitude is toward them. I, you know, 
they, they looked at me cross-eyed, and I, I tell you, from this point on, I don't want to have nothing to do with them. That, that's, that's not the right attitude, is it? I mean, the, the, we're looking, we, we have a, a, a negative attitude toward them. Or we might not have a negative attitude toward them. It could be family members. It can make other family members feel guilty. Because a family member can say, look, you are just not doing enough for me. Well, and then we're thinking, well, it's not all about you. Right? I mean, you do this about another, but you don't do this for me. What is that person doing? Trying to make you feel guilty when you may not feel guilty guilty or feel guilt. There are those who expect something from others that's beyond the power of others to accomplish. And when others can't fulfill the request and they become guilt-ridden, when it should not be there. But then sometimes there can be guilt when guilt should not be there. For example, there are parents, for example, they can make their children feel guilty about things of which their children are not even responsible. But on the other hand, there are children that can do the same thing to their parents, that make them feel guilty about things of which the parents are not even responsible. Friends, I'll tell you something. You will be discerning if you have violated the will of, all, of the Almighty and you have a conscience that is hurting. And then allow the guilt to take you back to your rightful place. Take you back home to God. Get forgiveness. And don't have that guilt anymore. But then likewise, you need to let go of the unnecessary guilt and the faults. Don't feel guilty when there is no reason. And when there is a reason for feeling guilty, get right with God. That's it. I, uh, my sermon could be over right there. Well, in 2 Samuel 11, you have a man who at one time had been identified as a man after God's own heart. That's King David. And he is a man who in many ways ought to be followed. For here's a man who was a great leader. He was a man who demonstrated early in his life his sincere love for God. Here was a man who had a whole lot of courage, right? Here's a man who was very sincere, but he was still a man. Still a man. And there was on an occasion when he sinned grievously in the sight of God. You see, David committed adultery with another man's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. Her husband's name was Uriah. The Hittite, Uriah. The flesh got a hold of David. He took advantage of the lust of the flesh to his own ruin. And so David had committed a sin with Bathsheba, but then what did David try to do? Oh, we know this. We've read this many times. We grew up hearing this story where David then tried to forget the whole thing had happened. He tried to just forget about, but it didn't work that way because Bathsheba is expecting David's child. And now David realizes he's got to do more to be able to cover this up. 
And so what did he do? Well, he calls for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come in from the field of battle and hoping and trusting that he will go in unto his wife and enjoy that pleasure. If they can't have that pleasure with their wives, Uriah says, then I can't either. Why? My comrades are out on the battlefield. You're not calling them in to be able to lie with their wives, and I don't think that they would do it because they would know that we were out there. Because I know they're out there. I am not going to take advantage of that. It's not right. And so he refused to go in unto his wife, and therefore what's David going to do? Well, King David, the man after God's own heart to cover his own sin, he would have Uriah placed in the forefront of battle. Uriah would be killed. And then at that time, David would bring Bathsheba to himself and together they would have their child. Now, I want you to notice verse 26 of 2 Samuel 11. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. Now, David has done all that he can do up to this point to try to cover up his sin, that is, to hide it. But I read about David, and so have you, and I know this about David. David is a depressed man. David is living with a guilt-ridden soul. Because he knows that the last sentence in this chapter is true. But the thing that David hath done displeased the Lord. Now, what happens when a person is in a situation like this? When he just continually refuses to acknowledge his sin and tries to cover it up? Well, something needs to happen. And so Nathan the prophet comes into the scene and he tries to, and he goes to David and tries to help David understand his situation. Then we get to chapter 12 and Nathan the prophet tells David a little story and the Lord sent Nathan unto David and he came unto him and he said unto him there were two men in one city the one rich and the other poor the rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nursed up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was to come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he had done this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thou art the man. You're the one I'm talking about. For you have done this terrible deed. 
You have taken another man's wife who did not belong to you. You committed adultery with her. Then you tried to cover it up. You had him killed because you had the power to do it. Finally, finally, David's sin is out there before him, brought right out before him to see. And because of the influence of God's man, Nathan the prophet, David now has to deal with it. He's going to have to deal with it. Now, what has David been having to fight in his own personal life? He's having to fight distress. He's having to fight depression, all of which is linked to his guilt. And if you study some of the passages in the book of Psalms, you're going to find that because of this episode in David's life, he has wrote some Psalms that shows that he was just wasting away physically. He, here, here was a man who was under much emotional distress. In his mind, he could not get rid of that thought of what he had done. Having taken another man's wife and then having that man killed. But he would not acknowledge it, not even to his God, in private. He's trying to hide. He's trying to hide it, but it's still there. It's still there. He's guilt-ridden. And what he needed was something very simple. Maybe it's what you need. I know it's what I've often needed. And what it is is a glorious pardon that comes from God. But there's a way you receive that glorious pardon. There is a way to receive that glorious pardon. And I'm going to show you from David himself how he obtained a very glorious pardon from, from God and likewise got rid of his guilt. So I want you to notice with me Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And have how David accomplished this. Now Psalm 32 is much like Psalm 51. And we know that Psalm 51 was a, a, a penitential psalm. But there are songs written by David that tell us about his penitent heart, of how he got right with God once he went astray. And Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are particularly involved with what happened between David and Bathsheba. That's why it's so important. I want you to notice from Psalm 32 this evening, first of all, of David's contentment. David's command. You see, if you've got guilt... You don't have contentment. You don't have contentment. But David has found something, according to Psalm 32, that has brought contentment back into his life. Let's notice what it is in verse 1 of Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression, transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Now, now, this word blessed means happy. It means joyous. Jesus used the same language in the Sermon on the Mount. And he begins the Sermon on the Mount with these words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in uh, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, 3 and 4. What's Jesus talking about? Poor in spirit, people who are humble, humble enough to recognize their own sins, right? 
humble enough to recognize their own sins and their faults. Humble enough to acknowledge that without the Lord, they would have no hope. Now, who are those that mourn in Matthew 4? They who are mourning over their sins. Blessed are they who mourn over their sins and who are truly penitent over them, for they shall be comforted. That's how you can read that. So happy is the man, David says, whose sins are forgiven, he says. Now, so much in the book of Psalms is learned about the character of God. And what I've noticed, what I've noticed in this particular passage, as in many other passages like it, is that our God loves pardoning our lives. Our offenses. He delights in that. Never buy into this lie of the devil that God doesn't want to forgive He delights in forgiving us. Now let's go to the New Testament book of James, if you will. And I want you to notice in James chapter 2 and verse 13. Because this this indeed will comfort us, if you will, when we feel the burden of sin. Listen to what James writes. For he shall have judgment without mercy that has showed no mercy. Now, that's, that's understandable, isn't it? That the person who's never shown mercy does receive mercy. But notice this. And mercy rejoices against judgment. What is James saying? James is saying that God would rather forgive your sins than to punish you for it. He would rather forgive you than to punish you. God would rather forgive you of your sins than to punish you for them. And so David writes, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, there back in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Now, let's notice the terms that David uses. Let's go back to Psalm 32. And notice here the the terms that David uses as he identifies his sin. God forgive those transgressions. What are transgressions? Well, transgressions are those things that are in outright open rebellion against God's rightful authority. That's it. A transgression of God's law. You see, when one becomes a Christian, he says, I'm acknowledging God, God's authority over my life. That's right. That's God's holy word is going to govern my life. But transgression is that which is indicative of defying the very rightful authority of God. Defying it. And so in the beginning of time, Adam and Eve had took the authority that was given them verbally, of course. Right? The authority that God had placed over them and they just set it aside And followed the will of the devil. Just set it aside. They in essence said. Well we we really don't have to follow God. All right. We will do as we please. And that's what the devil wanted them to think. That's what the devil convinced them to do. But they defied God's rightful authority over them. And so transgression is rebellion against God's rightful authority. Now, you can put 1 John 3, 4 right there in your notes. 1 John 3, 4. 
Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law of God. I finished it with those two words. Of God. Now to forgive, he's talking about forgiveness. He will forgive our transgressions. He forgives means he lifts the burden and he carries it away. So here is a man who is like David. He's plagued with the burden of the sin. But God forgives the transgression and he lifts the burden and then carries it away. He, he takes it away. He removes it completely. And then there's something else that's said here. Not only does God forgive transgression, he covers sin. Now, sin is a failure according to God's standard. It literally means to miss the mark, right? Now, when something is covered, what does it mean? It's concealed or it's being concealed. Covered means to conceal so that it cannot appear, so that it cannot be recognized. God wants to cover our sins so that they will not be seen any longer. Isn't that wonderful to even actually think about that? That's what he wants. Now, every one of us who are Christians ought to seek to minimize the sins, ought not to seek to minimize the sins of others. I don't mean minimize their importance, for the sin is between that person and God. But when a person comes forward, and sometimes we see that happen, a person might come forward in an assembly like this, right? Needing prayers for forgiveness. That person might even say, you know, I've sought God to forgive me of certain sin in my life. But I want you to forgive me as well. We might have the audacity to ask, well, what was it that he did? What was it that she did? What was it? Well, it's, not, it's none of our business. Again, that's between them and God. Right? But we don't need to know that. It's personal. But what that person is doing is saying, I recognize what I have done whether it's known or not. Now, as a fellow Christian, what I want to do is to minimize the knowledge of that in every way. I want to conceal that because God wants to conceal it. He wants to keep it covered. What God does when he forgives us, he covers our sin. It's concealed in every way. God says, I'm not talking about that again. That's done. God covers our sin. Likewise, the text also tells us impute is not an iniquity. And that word iniquities is a strong word as it relates to sin. Iniquity is that which is completely vile in the sight of God. I'll tell you something, that's vile. That's come to our attention in recent months and years that that Planned Parenthood is a vile organization. You, you think about how wicked an organization is that takes delight for profit to the selling of a loved one's baby body parts. That's vile. At least from my, my eyes. That's iniquity. That's wicked. And shame on Republicans and Democrats alike for funding something like that. Planned Parenthood. 
And so when we talk about this word vile and we talk about this word iniquity, it is something that is exceedingly sinful in the sight of God, like the taking of innocent blood. We learn in this particular passage that there is a man, that there is an individual that God does not charge with iniquity. The text says, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no God. Do you mean there is somebody that the Lord imputeth not iniquity? That he does not charge him for his sins? Yes, indeed, there is such a man. I want you to go with me, if you will, to what the Apostle Paul says about that man in the fourth chapter of Romans. In the fourth chapter of Romans. And it ties very well in with Psalm 32. Romans chapter 4. In verse 2, we notice. Right there. For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward, not reckoned of grace, but of debt. You see, you could work all day long till you have no more hands or fingers, and yet at the same time, that by itself, through your own personal work, would not forgive your sins. It can't be done that way. But notice what he goes on. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. That's it. Somebody said, well, preacher, are you saying that there's a man out there that the Lord will not charge him with sin? I didn't say that. But David said it. The apostle Paul said it, right? By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And who is that man? Here it is. The one whose sins have been forgiven. That's the one of whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity against him. His sin is covered. His transgressions are forgiven. So that's the reason that we see this, his contentment, that David is a satisfied soul when you, when you read Psalm 32. Now, there's a reason because Nathan had brought David's sin unto his attention that he had to deal with his sin, and he finally did. And he finally did what was right. He allowed the Lord to do what the Lord wanted to do all along, and that's forgive him of the transgression and cover his sin. Isn't that wonderful? He no longer would impute or charge against him iniquity. More so, notice not only his contentment, but his confession. He's now living in contentment, he's satisfied. The guilt is gone. But what about his confession? We go back to Psalm 32, if you will. Back to Psalm 32 and look at verse 3. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. He says physically, that is physically, I was hurting. 
But then look at verse 4. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. What's that? The load of guilt, right? My moisture is turned into the, the, the drought of summer. He, he said, I have shed so many tears that I can't shed anymore. So many tears that I can't shed anymore. Verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. That's what he had to do, isn't it? That's what he had to do. He had to confess his sin. Now, up to this point, David has spent some long days. He spent some long nights before Nathan comes to him. And perhaps he tried several ways to let go of this guilt. But how do you get rid of guilt like this? I, I know how some try. Some just try to deny it, right? They just try to deny it. They just push it to the back of their mind. Like, like as if it never happened. Some, on the other hand, will try to hide their sins. That's what Adam and Eve did, didn't they? They just tried to hide from God. Others tried to just laugh their sins away. As long as I'm laughing, and I'm as, as long as I'm joking, as long as I'm feeling good, well, then everything's going to be all right. No. But something's still deep, bothering deep down within you. You see, the burden of unconfessed sin was realized in David's life. Rotting bones, if you will. The grief of his sin and the grief of the cover-up robbed David of his strength and he cannot be the leader that God intended him to be. And, and David figured that out. He felt God's heavy hand. Listen to verse 4 again. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. That, my friends, is good guilt. You see, his conscience was so bothered that he knew it came from the hand of God. You will be miserable when you live with unconfessed sin unless one of two things happen. Number one, you confess the sin and God forgives and the guilt is gone. Or you can just allow your heart to become more and more and more hardened under the word of God. And you see, when the child of God is burdened with sin, the only thing, will, the only thing will, that will work, and David found out about it, is called open confession before God. Now, you want to talk about the dangerous situation. Here's the king of God's people who wasn't right with God. But then there's this acknowledgement, this uncovering, and now forgiveness. Here's a question that arises. Why did he do this in the first place? We could go back and we say, well, why did he do what he did with Bathsheba? Well, he too was a man, right? He was a man and he was not the first one to cover, to, to sin, nor was, it, was he the last one, right? But knowing what he knew about God, why didn't he just acknowledge his sin before God from the very outset? That, that has bothered me for some time. To think about that is why... He, Knowing what he knew, why did he go ahead and do it? Well, I don't know, but I know that he was a human being just like you and I are human beings. And that he was not free from the ability to sin, to yield to that temptation. You think maybe for a moment that he had the wrong understanding of God? I think a lot of people do. 
Maybe we just need to wait till God cools down about this. You know, think of us as who are parents, particularly those who are dads. That we have to be careful how we demonstrate God to our children. Because if our children get scared to bring anything to us because they know that dad's going to have a tantrum, well, it might take a while for him to cool down. And that's what probably their view of God was, okay? Let me tell you this, that God is always under control, always. He doesn't do anything haphazardly. But I also say this about God. You see, David's sin with Bathsheba was as fresh on the mind of God on the day that he acknowledged his sin as it was when he committed the sin. I know that that's pretty good. God is in control of his temperament. But God had not forgotten what they've done. And the text says that the thing displeased the Lord, didn't it? Maybe David brought, bought into the devil's lie. What is the lie of the devil? I mentioned it a moment ago. That the devil says, go ahead. You do your own thing. There's no consequence for it. And then you give in to the temptation. And then you look at what the devil says. He says, you rascal. Don't you think for a moment that, that God's going to ever forgive you now? Because he's holy. He's righteous. You might as well forget it. He won't have anything to do with you now. Why? Because you transgressed his law. Can you imagine the devil doing that? He said, well, go ahead and do it. You know, do what you want. Do as you please. You know, there ain't no consequences. And then when you do it, he's like, <laughs> guess what? God don't want to have nothing to do with you now. But he does want something to do with us. He wants to forgive us. But we have to come to him for that forgiveness. We need to quickly confess those sins for God will forgive the penitent. Look at this passage in Isaiah 55 and verse 7. He says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God. He will abundantly do what? Pardon what did David need? David needed his sins forgiven, his sins pardoned. Now, we notice the contentment and the confession of David, but I want you to notice his commitment. You see, his confession was not mere lips, lip service. It was real. His life was transformed. Look at the, listen to verses 6 and 8. Of Psalm 32. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me with the songs of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. I want you to notice something about David here as we also find in the 51st Psalm and that is he has come back to the Lord and he's committed. He has a commitment. There's a commitment made here. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Then will I teach transgressors. Then will I instruct sinners in the way. And then will I go out and do what I'm supposed to do Psalm 51, 12. David recognized in this passage that he had been forgiven and he owed that forgiveness to God. And he wanted to teach others about him. Here is a man 
whose life had been chaotic, now it's returning to some degree of order again where God can take the chaos out of our lives but put order back in. I want you to understand that the Lord's on your side and he will even do the same thing even tonight. If only you'll be willing to do what he has asked you to do. You have transgressed his law. But God is looking at an opportunity to have you come back and be right with him once again. As a child of God, if we have went back into the world of sin, we need to repent of that. Pray that God will forgive you. We'll pray with you and for you as well. But if you're not a Christian, then what you need to do is become one. By obedience to the very gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, by faith and believing that he is the son of God, by repentance of those sins, that good confession and being baptized in that watery grave. The opportunity is yours, but it's up to you to make that decision and make that walk right down that aisle for us to meet you and greet you. Can we help you in any way? We hope that we can. Won't you come? As together we stand and sing.